Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Greetings one and all, and welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Mike Leadis. I spent three decades working in the music industry, running my own PR company, and working as a publicist. For you 2 The Police, Depeche Mode, David Bowie, New Order, Peter Gabriel, Genesis, blah, 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 blah. If you want to know more, feel free to visit my website at www.tonymikeleadis.com. Each week, we'll strive to bring you a cornucopia of musical delights, all based around storytelling. There's archive interviews from back in my radio days with the likes of the Ramones, Steve Winwood, the Cramps, U2, etc., etc. We also have some great stories from some industry insiders. Welcome to part three of the U2 Quartet of Podcasts. Today, the story of Red Rocks. From Malcolm Gary, a guest we had a few weeks ago, sharing with us his amazing career in music television. So sit back and enjoy. At the time I was producing the tube, I was living in a new town called Peterlee, uh, which had been built uh, to take the, the kind of miners um, when, the, when, the, when the, the, the pits closed, basically. Uh, and even before that, it was part of the kind of, you know, um, halcyon days of garden cities that, that they had in the UK at the time. And so they wanted to create these smoke-free, kind of the beginning of, air con- uh, of uh, central heating. And we moved there because my mum had terrible asthma and Newcastle was full of smog. So I grew up in, in Peterlee, basically. And uh, I had a bunch of great mates who were all really, really into music and very knowledgeable and passionate, Les and Alan and Colin and Gaz and all these guys. And they used to turn me on to like what they'd been listening to on the John Peel show and, you know, local bands they'd seen. And I remember, um, I think it was Alan in, the, in the, a pub called The Black Bull one night said, hey, listen to this. And he had a, um, a cassette and he played it to me. And it was this 
band from Ireland called U2. And I went, wow, that's really great. Um, and I checked them out and we did a bit of digging and um, got in touch with them and said, look, we're doing this uh, new show. I'd love, I'd love you to be on it. And it, you know, at the time, the tube was commissioned. We'd just done Queen at Milton Keynes, which we'd got in the can, and we'd done the police again. And uh, I said, we've got a gig coming up at uh, Gateshead Stadium, and I need a support band for the police. And uh, they said, we'll do it. <laughs> and, uh, and I just got on so well with the guys. I just thought they were really the most lovely bunch of guys very smart, very funny, um, passionate about what they wanted to do. Bono obviously had a vision, Bono and Edge, of, of what, you know, what they wanted to do with the band. Plus, a very, very bright, erudite, incredibly progressive manager in the shape of Paul McGuinness, who didn't want to go down the traditional route of, of how to manage a band. And that cocktail really, really manifested itself in their music and and i loved them i just and you know they, they, as i said before they almost became the house band i don't know how many times they played the tube and we got we became friends and then one day i got a call from paul mcginnis who said Malcolm, i had an idea but it's a big idea and it's a mad idea and if it goes wrong it'll be the end of the band and if you get involved it might be the end of you <laughs> i was like well, you're not selling it very well paul <laughs> what is it he said look Come down to London, we'll have a meal and I'll talk you through it because it's, it's ambitious. And anyway, we had, I'd never had a Thai meal before with duck that you roll up in a pancake because it hadn't got as far as London. And I remember it was my first ever Thai meal, you know, and he was showing me how to do these pancakes and you put the lovely rich plum sauce on it and you put your duck in it and you roll it like, oh my God, this is incredible. And it was at that meal he set up we found this venue it's a mile high in the rocky mountains it's called red rocks and rumor has it it's where all the indian tribes used to meet once a year or once every five years i can't remember to literally bury the hatchet hence the expression and to basically work out how to tackle this new enemy of the white man and he said uh, they've been doing kind of all sorts of weird things up there, but they haven't done any rock music, any real proper concerts as such. And he said, the, the venue is staggeringly beautiful. Um, he said, it's so high that there isn't very much oxygen. You've actually got, you've got to be careful. If you over, you know, stretch yourself, you'll, you, you'll feel like you've got asthma all of a sudden. And he said, but it's stunning. And he said, I want to put the band on there because we've got to break America and we've got to do something really special and really different. And we're going to tour everywhere. We're going to play every damn club, every night hall, every, every you know, band hall, every little venue we can. But I still think we've got to do something special. And I think TV is the answer. And at that time, as well as Channel 4 being invented, there was another revolution in media called MTV. And Paul McGuinness, being the wily, wily fox that he was, recognized that here was an opportunity to crack America in one fell swoop if you could come up with a brilliant idea and do something very different. So he said, you know, 
and I'd like you to film it, Malcolm. And uh, I said, okay, who's paying for all this? Is it Island Records? He said, nope. He said, Island will put something into it, of course, but the band are going to put their money into it as well. And, um, and he said, you know, uh, if you shoot it, I'll give you exclusive rights for a certain period of time. And Barry Fay, the promoter as well, put some money in, didn't he? Barry Fay. So there was an amazing promoter called Barry Fay um, and a whole bunch of people down there, Rick Werpel and this great, great team of people who were all risk takers, who all loved Paul McGuinness and loved Paul and were very open to the idea of TV because this is a time when, again, to, to do TV in a venue, they were all controlled by the Teamsters, which is the unions. And anyway, Paul said, you're not going to have any problems like that, Malcolm. You know, but I do want you to bring the Tube team out. So it's, going to be, it's not going to be cheap. I want Gavin to direct it. I want you to be hands-on producer on it. I don't want you to, you know, just executive producer. And I want you to bring the cameraman out. In other words, recreate the Tube a mile high in the Rocky Mountains with a huge thousand, you know, two, three thousand live audience in the open air. And I was like, wow. And he showed me some pictures of the venue. And I said, look, can we do this as a tube special? Then I can find some money to do it. Uh, and uh, he said, you can do whatever you want, Malcolm. I'm giving you world exclusive rights on it. I was like, okay. So cut a long story short, we get the green light. I get the green light from the channel to do it. We fly all the A team over and, um, we get over there like a few days before the venue was just mind blowing when you could finally get up to it. Cause it was a, a right old trek to get up there and it required all sorts of, you know, technical things that we had to do. We, we weren't sure whether the lenses could actually accommodate, uh, you know, the, the lighting up there and the pressure of it. It's just weird. It was a kind of weird, weird environment to shoot a concert. And because it was outdoor, but it was the Rocky Mountains and, you know, it was Arizona and like, oh God, that's not going to be a problem. Anyway, so we do the sound checks and everything the day before. Everything is great. And it gets to the big day and the heavens opened. You know, the crowd were already pretty much in the venue because uh, Barry had let them in early. But I've never seen a storm like it in my life. And I get a call from Paul saying, Barry wants us to go up to the venue, Malcolm. He wants to show us something. And we got up there and it was, it was, like, it was like a scene from a war movie. You know, these poor kids were just covered in, in you know, it, it was soaked to the skin. It was black. And here's the thing. Barry said, watch the stage. And he put the power on for about less than a minute. It was so bad and everything was so wet. The electricity was arcing from one side of the stage, like lightning, to the other side. And he said, this isn't going to happen. I'm pulling the gig because it's just somebody will die. And I remember looking at Paul's face and, I mean, he was like a broken man. I just thought, oh, my God. And then I suddenly thought, oh, my God, I've got to go back to the, London with nothing in the can. You know, this is like a big, big disaster all round for everybody. Not least Barry, not least Paul, not least myself and the team and, you know, all the lads who'd come over and, you know, Gavin and uh, Peter and the, you know, oh my God. So anyway, 
it was before lunchtime. So he said, look, let's go back. We'll try and find another venue, indoor venue, which we can change. You know, can you keep the crew over an extra day, Malcolm? And I said, yeah, might have to do it tomorrow. So we all go back to a hotel and uh, I said to Paul, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to go and have a steam or a sauna. And I said, I'm going to put my head down for half an hour, Paul, and just get some kip and let everybody know that what's going on. So that took about an hour on the phone. I got everyone together in the room as well. And I said, look, guys, just go and have a cold beer and uh, we'll see what happens. Hopefully we can salvage something tomorrow. And I'm walking up. I fell sound asleep. I'm walking up by my phone. And Paul said, it was Paul McGinnis, said, have you looked outside? Saying, look outside, Malcolm, look outside over Denver. And it stopped raining. And he said, Barry Fair, the promoter, reckons that if you can do it, he can dry everything off. He can get, if there are still some kids up there, would you believe it, who refuse to move? He can get them down the front and perhaps we can get a show out of it. And I said, Paul, we'll do anything we can to try and make this work. He said, it'll start later. But he said that, you know, that might, might be nicer lighting. Let's see what happens as long as it doesn't rain again. So I get the whole crew and get them sorted out. And we all go back up there. I remember having to stop halfway up. There was a, there was a, a plugger called Nigel Sweeney. He said, I'll give you a race up, up, the, up, the, up the hill, up the steps to the venue. And I said, okay, off you go. And he went running up. Because after about four minutes, he was like, oh, oh, I can't breathe. I said, yeah, because there's no oxygen. <laughs> You're a mile high, you know. Uh, and um, anyway, we get up there, we set up. And the most extraordinary thing happened. And this is what made that concert so special, as well as the camera work and what Gavin did with it and the performance of the band, of course. There was a mist descended after the rain, which just fell into the venue. The venue is like a kind of bowl with these incredible rocks behind it, sticking out from the, kind of the Rockies. And this mist added the most extraordinary effect in the venue, which if you watch it back, you'll see. It did all sorts of weird things with the camera lenses, and it just gave the whole thing a kind of filter and a quality, which I've never seen before and I've never seen since. Um, and it just, we had huge fires, like bonfires lit on top of the rocks that, that Barry Fay and uh, the band had organized. And the sheen around the uh, around the fire was extraordinary and flared everywhere. And a crazy, crazy, crazy ex-Vietnam helicopter pilot with a camera mount who came far too low into the venue. <laughs> I mean, my God, it would never happen today. But some of the aerial shots that you see in that concert, you know, I don't know what he'd been smoking, but by God, it did the trick. The story of Red Rocks from Malcolm Gary, the instigator and executive producer of that magnificent concert. From way back then, June the 5th, 1983, to be exact. And there's plenty more to come. What was interesting about that night was, if you notice, every now and then Bono disappears off stage. And do you know what it was for? There was an oxygen tank. He had to have a blast of oxygen because he, you could see him at one point on the camera. We took it out of the film, actually. He was going grey. I mean, he wouldn't get off the stage to take a, um, a hit of oxygen. 
and he would have fainted. He just would have fainted, especially when he came out with a flag, you know, because that was a big old flag he carried out, you know, under the, we, had, we built a promontory stage, if you remember, Tony. I love promontory stages anyway. And I said, look, you know, to, and Paul was like, mm, not you, you know, and, and then we persuaded him to do it. Bono loved it, of course. Um, but it was quite, it was quite extraordinary. And, you know, everybody was into it. And then the plan was that I was going to sell it to MTV. Paul said, right, Malcolm, you know, it looks incredible. You know, can you, do you think you can sell this to MTV? Because the band were unknown in the States. What we did do is we made a promo from the concert to show MTV rather than sit down with it. Because you're never going to get an hour to show them a whole concert. So we did make a promo. But the interesting thing was the guy who was the buyer uh, Steve at MTV and M was also the buyer for Showtime Network, which is a big network in America, a bit like HBO. And th that was for real grown up stuff, you know, like, you know, Elton John and, you know, um, you know, Springsteen and all those sort of people eventually ended up on there. But, you know, MTV was like really what Paul was after. But I sold it to Steve at, at uh, MTV and he said, Malcolm, this is so unbelievable. I've never seen a, a rock show like this. Can I show it to the guys at Showtime? And I said, y yeah, um, but, you know, it's not, it's not, um, you know, it, it's not a huge band. It's not the Eagles, for heaven's sake. You know, and he said, I, I, this is just a great piece of TV. And he said, I think um, the boys at Showtime might like to see it. Now, the difference was MTV paid virtually nothing, as, as you remember, Tony, to show, buy anything, because it was all seen as promotion for the record companies. Showtime was a proper grown-up network and paid serious money and was watched by a much wider, older demographic. So, lo and behold, <laughs> I get a call one day. We're back in London. And Steve says, yeah, yeah, we're going to show it on MTV, but we're going to give it the premiere on Showtime. And that really was the tipping point. I mean, I remember Paul just couldn't believe it. Or Barry, any other guys. Like, Showtime Network? And I said, yep. And, and we got a check. It was really, it was really just, the, you know, the reviews were extraordinary and Variety and Billboard and the New York Times, and oh my goodness, it just, ex the whole thing exploded. And that, the album and the DVD sat in the charts for years, years after that. <laughs> that was yeah. crazy. Um, it was one of those, but it was, it was about, it was back to, you know, Andrea's thing, Jeremy Isaacs, who ran Channel 4, you've got to take risks. And most managers would not have invested that much money you had a record label, you know, Chris Blackwell, again, who's a mentor of mine and, and a lot of people and, you know, the people who were running Ireland at the time, the band themselves, Barry Fair. You had all these people who were prepared to put their necks on the block and nearly lost everything, myself included, if it hadn't, if it hadn't stopped raining. Dennis was, again, a, a unique person in, the, in, a, in a band entourage and that he was a logistics man he was but he was more than belt and braces and the, the really interesting thing about that whole unit from management to promoter to the, uh, the people like Dennis and the sound guy 
they welcome television. And very often, as you know, Tony, TV and music makes, there are they're difficult bedfellows. And especially at that point, you know, it's not so much now, but back in the 80s, the 70s and the 80s, there was a kind of standoffishness. You know, there was, it was a difficult, and I think, you know, Top of the Pops had a lot to blame for that, if I'm honest, you know, and the Musicians Union had a lot to blame for it. Um, making people re-record master tracks before they would go on top of the pop. It was all that nonsense that went on. The unions had a lot to blame for it, you know. Um, I mean, when we took a crew out to shoot anywhere around the world, it was usually 14 to 16 people. I mean, how expensive is that? You know, now I take two or three people. But the unions insisted you had to have a prop man, you had to have an assistant sound man, you had to have a grip. It didn't matter if you're doing one interview with Chris Blackwell, you needed 16 people. We broke so many rules putting that concert on, and we did take risks. And you'd never get away with it now with health and safety in a million years. <laughs> to get Paul's you know, kind of support on it, and I think, um, I mean, that's kind of what we did. I mean, I guess that was our trademark. And uh, the reason bands liked to come up and do it, because it was just like basically going to another gig. It, yeah. was, it was no difference going to Studio 5 at County's Television Newcastle than going to Hacienda. Yeah. You had a sound check, you had a live audience, you had people who had, you know, different kinds of accreditation to get in. Uh, you had fans there. Um, you could keep on playing after the camera stopped. So it was just like a gig. You know, you had groupies outside. Barry did a, Barry Fay and um, Rick Werple and all those guys did a brilliant job of um, making it look like we had a, a, an audience. But if, you know, if the camera had done a, a pan left, and looked at the rest of the, um, well, I say the auditorium, you know, it wasn't really, it was open air auditorium, I guess. It would have been just empty seats, you know, so we had to be very careful. And there were the odd, you know, more than the odd shots. There was a lot of shots we couldn't use because every now and then camera would kind of, you know, get the fact that the venue was really two thirds empty. There was something about the magic of that night, you know, when, you know, band did Sunday Bloody Sunday and you know it was kind of heartfelt uh, and there was a lot of stuff going on in America at the time as well um, I remember sitting talking to Bono about it the night before you know stuff that was going on on the stage and even even in um, even in, in you know where we were around Red Rocks and Denver and Dallas and all that you know all those southern towns it was kind of weird uh, sense of unease. I mean, they were they were they were so ahead of their time in so many ways. But at the end of the day, and they, you know, the dear friends now. I mean, Bono sent me a lovely 70th birthday message. Bless him. You know, and upstairs at his house and all of that stuff. But you know, they just they haven't changed. I mean, we went on to shoot massive gigs with them, including the famous Rose Bowl gig, which was the first global webcast of, of its kind that YouTube ever did. Hundred thousand people. And the show went out everywhere, you know, and because <laughs> they had this idea, the band had the idea, I think it was Bono's idea of uh, when people were texting messages or, or doing messages on YouTube, we should put them up on the big screen. Remember that big, huge 360? It was a 360 show that YouTube did. And because we were getting messages from China and Iran and Afghanistan and all these countries, you know, and, uh, and halfway through the show, Bono decided spontaneously to read a Muslim prayer. Paul McGuinness is about to have a stroke on the spot because <laughs> we didn't understand what the words were because <laughs> it was in, you know, 
in the language, in the lingua franca of, of, of the religion. It's like, what? And suddenly, the, you know, the screens just went white hot. And then we were getting kids from China saying, we're being shut down, we're being shut down. Then all the messages from China would just disappear because they'd been shut down with a firewall. And then slowly, you'd see them creeping back in as these kids had managed to hack through the firewall again. I mean, I, it was, I was incredibly flattered, you know. We'd never done anything like that. I mean, we'd shot overseas before on film, as it was then, but we'd never done anything on that scale. And certainly in a venue like that, which was, you know, there was nothing there. I mean, it was just like a, a quarry. There was nothing at all. It wasn't geared up. It wasn't like going to you know, the Rose Bowl or going to the Hollywood Bowl or, or the O2. You know, it was just nothing there. And, um, and it, you know, it was down to that brilliant team that Paul basically wrapped around him, you know, Barry and Rick Whirlpool and these, these incredible talented, you know, individuals that, uh, that um, and, and including the mad helicopter pilot. <laughs> I had the benefit of sitting in the, in the truck so, you know, you, when you do a concert like that, you have a big, normally you have a big, uh, a, a, a big truck, which you just, you know, has all the screens in. We, we didn't have an outside broadcast unit because it was a mile high and you couldn't drive a truck up a mile in the Rocky Mountains. So we had to do what's called a D-rig, uh, where you, you basically dismantle the truck and you set up a kind of gallery, a TV gallery, with all the screens and a vision mixing desk and everything in a, in a porter cabin or, you, you know, and because we, we had to cover everything in, in waterproof cloths in case it rained again. So I was, I had the luxury of seeing stuff that Gavin, the director, Gavin Taylor was getting on the little screens. And it was like, oh my God. But it was so radically different to anything I've ever seen before. Cause we were getting these burn marks if you watch, you'll see where, when the camera does a, a pan, like a fast movement left or right, it left like a kind of vapor trail because of the, the lights were so bright and we had this mist, which almost acted as a kind of huge lens. If you imagine a huge magnifying glass around the arena. So everything was more intense. So the flames that were burning on top of the, of the rocks looked like they were, you know, kind of nuclear almost, you know, they had a glow about them, which was like, oh my God, these are radioactive. And the steam coming out of Bono's mouth when he comes out to do Sunday Bloody Sunday with the flag, he looked like a, a raging bull. It's like he was going to get into the, the, the ring with, you know, um, you know, the world heavyweight champion. And it was steam coming off everybody. So I, I, I thought at the time, we've got something really really unique but i was you know kind of the inside of my guts were kind of churning because you're never ever sure until you look at it back in a in the in the comfort of an edit suite that from getting those pictures to the little screen in the gallery to getting them and don't forget we're talking about old-fashioned tape back there not digital a lot of things can happen. And the place was soaking wet everywhere. I mean, I remember kneeling down behind one of the cameramen just to hold him so he wouldn't fall off the damn rocks. And, you know, no, I'm amazed my knees are still working because we were basically kneeling in a puddle for like two hours. And he was, and everybody had these kind of, you know, Barry Fade, get these great waterproofs on, but you know, the water gets everywhere. 
And it was, it was only when we got it back into the edit suite and looked at it that we thought, well, we've got something really, really very, very special and unique here. And it kind of all boiled over in that huge quarry where the Indians used to bury the, the tomahawk. It's incredible. I know the story. I've read it. I've known Malcolm for years. So I kind of, you know, was working with the band at the time and everything. So, but listening to it again, and especially with the man who put it together, reciting it, uh, still sends shivers up my spine. It, it remains one of the finest pieces of music television ever. Uh, Under a Broad Red Sky was the album. Um, the film Red Rocks and all the things that went along with it that Malcolm was talking about were absolutely phenomenal. That was part three of our series of uh, programmes on U2. The next one includes me, because uh, it's an interview I did um, around the release of The Unforgettable Fire, which was just before um, Red Rocks. So we're not doing them kind of, you know, chronologically. We're just kind of throwing them in appropriately when we see fit. Um, they're all good stories. Um, band are great to interview and uh, there's always something different that comes out you heard uh, Neil Story talking about the very first time he took the band uh, took the uh, journalist to see the band in Ireland and then promptly followed that up by taking the journalist to see the band I think it was at the Hope and Anchor to the massive audience of seven people you know it's so amazing looking at a band that are so huge now uh, a time when they were kind of just going through uh, learning the trade and paying their dues so to speak and um, you learn so much from it it's incredibly inspiring and talking to the people that were there firsthand uh, in all the various stages is nothing other than really wonderful but we still have more to come there's an interview i did with the band in 1984 just around the release of the unforgettable fire and that'll be part four of the series and i think we'll have another one because i think i've got some more material of dave robinson's all worth listening to so go back through the vaults of Moments That Rock, check the various episodes, and you can see all along the way, there's lots of different stuff. There's interviews with the Ramones, the Cramps, Ray Davis, Steve Winwood, etc., etc. And, of course, plenty of you too. See you then. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.